Hey team, it's Syra, and this week we are switching it up a little. We are interviewing the infamous Morgan Housel. Aside from working for both Wall Street Journal and The Motley Fool, Morgan also dropped a book in 2020 called The Psychology of Money. I don't know that I'm going to do Morgan any justice by doing any further intro. So without further ado, let's go. Welcome to Girls Just Want to Have Fun, the weekly podcast that deconstructs the intimidating world of finance. Hosted by Syra Rahman, VP of Finance at HM Bradley, and her partner in crime, Megan McShane, a manager at a Fortune 100 company, and supported by Stockwitz. Girls Just Want to Have Funds will take on the important questions in personal finance that so many of us avoid, but also take on a glass of wine or two. Learn more, subscribe to the show, and join Syra and Megan on their no-shame adventure to financial freedom at girlsjustwanna.com. So we are here with the amazing Morgan Housel. Morgan, welcome to Girls Just Want to Have Funds. Megan and I are so pumped to be chatting with you. Thanks for having me. You guys have the best name podcast, so I'm excited to do this. Thanks for saying that. We love it too. Girls just want to have funds. Syra's definitely the finance and I'm definitely the the girls just want to having fun. <laughs> and <laughs> that's why we're excited to have you today to really talk about one, your book, Psychology and Money, and also just your perspective. We brought in a lot of people to talk about, you know, money in general because we believe that finance is a, you know, a part of our everyday lives and we don't let it lead us. We want to lead it sort of a thing. And so when we bring someone on, we want to say, you know, what's your backstory? Kind of, you're the hero of this story here. We want to hear like, what's your origin? What brought you into this space? Well, I had an interesting background if you go back to like my teenage years, because I basically didn't go to high school. I really don't have a high school education. I was a competitive ski racer in Lake Tahoe, California at the time. And myself and a lot of my peers didn't go to high school because we were skiing five or six days a week. And so we did like, I did like an independent study program that I did virtually nothing for. And they said, here's a diploma when I was when I was 16. So I kind of bypassed that part of my life, which was as I got into my later teens, I started realizing like that was going to set me back in life as I realized I wasn't going to be a professional skier, but now I basically have no education. What do I do next? My parents were such free spirits that they were, they were okay with it. And they have such a, a non-traditional background as well that they were okay with this path that I decided to take. But I always kind of had like this chip on my shoulder of like everyone else seems like they're 10 miles ahead of me in terms of where they were going into their young adult lives. And I was working at a hotel in Lake Tahoe, California at the time. I was working as a valet at a hotel. And that was my first, that was my first experience with wealthy people. You had all these people coming in from San Francisco in their Ferraris and their Lamborghinis. It was like the first time I didn't know that level of success existed in the world. And that to me, as like as I was 18 or 19, my first thought was, that's what I want. Like that guy, that's who I want to be. And it, it's funny now, because now that I look back, like the guy in the Lamborghini is like the exact opposite of who I want to be. But when I was 18, I was like, that's what I want. And that was my first kind of motivation to be like, okay, this is like, what, like, what do I want to do next? I don't have an education, like let alone college. I don't have a high school education. I don't really know what I want to do next, but I want to be that guy in the yellow Lamborghini. That was kind of the, the path that I was at at 18. And then without much understanding of what it was or why I wanted to do it, I realized that I wanted to be in finance. Again, I can't really explain why. I think if I'm honest, it was probably just because through the eyes of a 19-year-old boy, that's where the money and the power was. And again, that's one of the things that in hindsight, I'm like, ugh, that's, that's the worst reason to get into finance. But through my 19-year-old eyes, that's what it was. And then so I wanted to do something in finance. I didn't know what. And then I 
started my college education later. I started college when I was 20 or 21. And the plan all throughout college was investment banking. I wanted to be a partner at Goldman Sachs because again, that's where the, the power and the prestige was. Particularly if you go back to like the mid 2000s during this time, investment banking was like the most glamorous thing that you could do, at least in my cohort. It's not anymore, but back then it's hard to describe like how prestigious being an investment banker at Goldman Sachs was. At least that was my impression. And then I got an investment banking internship in my junior year. And the first hour of the first day, I said, get me the hell out of here. This is, it was the worst thing that I had ever experienced. The culture, the attitudes of investment banking, it was so bad and so gross and so antithetical to everything that I believed and every skill that I may have had at the time that I didn't want to do that. So I had to do something else. And then I got a job in private equity, which I liked. I really enjoyed private equity. But then this was 2007, 2008, and then the world fell apart and the economy blew up and there were no more private equity jobs. So I had to do something else in finance. I didn't really know what. And I kind of stumbled haphazardly across a writing job for The Motley Fool. And I thought I had no interest in writing, but I needed to do something. And in 2008, if someone offered you a job, you grabbed it with both hands and you didn't let go, even if you didn't like the job, is there, there were so few jobs out there. So it was never part of the plan to become a writer. And at first I didn't really enjoy it either. It was just, I have a job and you just be thankful for that. But I ended up over time really falling in love with writing and always wanted to do investing as well. I've always been interested in finance during this whole period, but it wasn't until I had done it for a couple of years that I really thought like, no, this is something that I really enjoy. I like being an outsider. I like the fact that I'm not in the trenches. I'm not a portfolio manager. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just an observer. And I think that gives, like observers have a different view, not necessarily a better view, but a different view from the people who are in the trenches, so to speak. And so I like that. So that's, that's all I've done this whole time is, is written about investing. That's all I've done for my whole career. And I'm most interested not in what should you do with your money or not where is the stock market gonna go next. That's not really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in like what's happening inside of people's heads when they're making decisions with money. What are their own self-justifications? What's their own relationship with money? That's the part that I think is most interesting because it's so counterintuitive to what we might think is supposed to work or what works on a spreadsheet or works on paper versus how people actually make decisions in the real world. I'm curious because you got into writing kind of haphazardly. What was kind of the tipping point where you were like, I really like this. I can make a career out of it. Do you remember that moment? No, I don't, I don't know if it was a moment. I just think it was just a slow kind of thing towards it started off as, like I said, it was like, if you offering me a job, like, thank you. I don't care what it is. I'd be sweeping floors at this point if, if that's what the job you gave me. So it started off as that. And then it was maybe after a year, oh, this isn't so painful anymore. And then after another year, like, oh, this is actually somewhat enjoyable. I don't think it was until maybe the last five years, like somewhat recently, that it was like, oh, this is definitely all I'm ever going to do. I'm not going to do anything else but this, which even maybe even three years ago, I would have opened up the possibility that I'll do something else. So it took a long time. It took you know, 13, 14 years before it was like, oh, this is definitely the thing and there's not going to be another thing. This is it. So there's no aha moment. But I mean, the thing about writing, everyone who writes online or even a podcast, something like this, is that people online give you very clear feedback. If you write something that's bad, they will, t they will let you know in no uncertain terms that what you wrote is very bad and dumb. Or if it's good, they'll let you know that too. So you know, that feedback is really helpful for content creators because you, you learn really quickly what works and what doesn't work. And once I kind of, you know, learned over the years, the voice that I wanted to have, the style that works, the style that doesn't work, it became more enjoyable as I started figuring out the process of writing. 
Yeah. And as we were talking about before we started recording, I've been listening to your book all week, which is a lot of people get mad at me that I'm listening to a book. But look, girls got to get outside. I'm (laughs) sick of looking at my PC all day. You know, I work with PCs. I work with three around me at all moments. I need some fresh air. Your writing style, it really resonated with me personally. It was very human. And it really kind of parallels nicely with the work that Syra and I have been trying to do here because she's a VP of finance and I'm in marketing, right? I'm a product marketing manager at a tech company. Finance has never been my thing. I think a lot of women do feel that way in particular. They're really intimidated by the topic. So I think you really bridged the gap to a more humane approach, if that makes sense, of like laymanizing very complex things. Because I'm sure your first day sitting at that internship, you're like, oh my God, they're all just blowing smoke and drinking the Kool-Aid. And I don't want to be that guy. If there's one finance skill that I'm proud of, it's I think I have a really good BS detector in finance. (laughs) And there's so much of that in finance. And you realize that so much of the explanations, the the commentary, the articles, the chit-chat, is just using, it's just making something that is not very complicated, really complex in order to make yourself sound smart, in order to justify your fees to your clients. It sounds cynical, but I think there's so much of that. Some of it's not intentional. It's just kind of people pick up the language as they go. And even if they're not intentionally trying to sound smarter than they are, just the terms and the explanations get so jumbled up because that's the language that the industry speaks. But I think if you just explain it like, you and I are at a bar having a conversation. How would I explain things to you? Like most people are capable of really simple communication. They just need to be in the right setting. So I think that's, again, since I've never been in the trenches, I've never been a fund manager. I've just been sitting at this desk for my whole career as an outsider. Maybe that's why I didn't get too swept up in the complicated language that gets thrown around so much. But I've always tried to make it so that, I mean, here's, here's one way to describe it. For years, I was at the Wall Street Journal as a columnist, and they said that your job as a, as a columnist at the Wall Street Journal was to write something every week that a hedge fund manager would benefit from, but a complete novice on the street would understand. It has to be both of those. And so you have to take some, like, it, it can't be so dumbed down that the hedge fund manager thinks it's boring, but you, you have to explain it so that anyone will be able to understand it. That's always the challenge. And I think if you can do that, there's a lot of value that you can add in a lot of fields, not just finance, but if you can do that in science, in politics, in history, if you can explain complicated things in ways that people understand, you can move the needle a lot in content. And Morgan, I actually relate to that on a really deep level because that was all of my training on Derivatives Trade Desk. It was, you need to be able to explain this to a five-year-old. And if you can't, we won't ever let you sell it. So from day one, for me, it was taking a complex product and breaking it down. And I think that's one of the reasons that Megan and I have really taken so many deep dives on the finance side. It's because she consistently pushes me to break these things down into more simplified manners. And one of the reasons I think we were so excited to bring you on, because I think that's one of your innate talents, having this ability to just make everything so easily accessible in realms that most people don't fully understand. So after reading your book a few times over, because sometimes I need to remind myself that having healthy financial habits is more important than making a lot of money in the near term, which is something that I'm trying to avoid in the current market. I guess something that I'm curious about, is there anything that you've learned in your research that was really surprising about how people behave? I think what's probably been the most important thing that I've learned, and it might be the most surprising as well, is just how different everyone is. 
and this is maybe what's the, the single most important part of behavioral finance is that we've been taught that there's one right answer for financial problems. That two plus two equals four for me and you and everyone, like there's one right answer for everyone, no matter who you are. And that's not true at all in finance. Like if you and I have the same education, the same intelligence, the same information, I might come to a completely different conclusion about how I should manage my money than you will. And neither one of us is right or wrong. We're just, we're obviously different people. And this is especially true if you look at people from different generations, different countries, different cultures, who have different goals, different social aspirations, different everything. Of course, we're not gonna come to the same conclusion about what we should do. And I think most financial debates in this industry, where you have two people on CNBC arguing, should you do this, should you do that? Is this stock cheap? Is this stock expensive? Most of those debates, not just some, but most, are not actually people debating. They're people with different goals talking over each other. And that's, I think, goes lost all the time. That I think investing, or not just investing, but the decisions that we make with our money, it's not like math where there's one right answer. It's more like a taste in music where equally smart people come to completely different conclusions over what's good and what's bad. That to me has been like probably the, the most important thing. And once you grasp that individually, then it gives yourself permission to do things with your money that other people might disagree with. Maybe that don't make sense. They don't add up on the spreadsheet to some extent, but it's, it's the right thing for you to do. Like the purpose of money is to give yourself a better life. And people can achieve that in totally different ways. And I think that's been the biggest insight so far that I, you know, probably 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't have understood it. 10 years ago, I would have viewed money as math-based, as it's just, we're trying to figure out how the numbers add up and the person with the best formula wins. And I've just realized it's not that at all, even for something like investing, like equally smart people come to different conclusions. That's such an incredible point and something that I probably need to continue reminding myself as well, especially when I look around and I see so many people doing so many incredible things and being successful in a multitude of different ways. So I was going to ask you this question. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I should or not. I'm going to anyways. So are you telling me that there is no secret to generational wealth? Like, is there a secret to generational wealth? I think if we're talking generational wealth, then that's, that's something different. Like, I mean, there's a stat that I use in the book that's maybe the most incredible statistic that I know in all of economics, which is that income among brothers is more correlated than height or weight, which means that if your brother is rich and tall, you are more likely to be rich than you are tall. Like your income is, is more correlated than your physical genes. So there is so much that we don't, and this is the, the studies are particularly from they focus on what men inherit from their fathers. And there's reasons for that, but that's, that, that's how they looked at the data because it's more consistent over the last hundred years where you can look at a lot of data when men took up the bulk of the workforce. Not today, but if you're looking at a hundred years of data, that's why they looked at brothers, what they inherit from their fathers. And I mean, that, that tells you most of what you need to know that is hard work important? Of course, of course it is. Is intelligence important? Of course. Like, but there's so much that happens in the world that is outside of your control in terms of success and failure. And I think I talk about this in the book that we tend to overlook that. When my son was born, I wrote, wrote him a letter. It's published online. And I write about this in the book too. But I said, look, when you're judging people's financial success, realize that not all success is due to hard work and not all failure is due to laziness. And that's true, not just for other people, but for yourself as well. And that's really important when we're trying to look for financial role models or anti-models, people who we don't want to be. It's so easy to overlook the role of success and failure or the role of luck and risk in, in life.
it's really easy to overlook those, particularly something like luck, because if I were to say, you got lucky, the financial success you have, you just got lucky. I look like I'm bitter. I look like I'm jealous. So people don't want to say that. Or if I were to say, you know, look in the mirror and say, I got lucky. I don't want to admit that either. That makes me feel bad. So luck, even if we know luck has a huge impact in the financial world, we don't want to talk about it just because it's socially not very comfortable to talk about. So it's, it's a big issue that gets swept under the rug. I sort of derailed that. The question was about generational wealth. I mean, is there, is there a trick to generational wealth? Yeah, it's be born lucky. And I think that's not a joke. That's, that's the truth of it. And we overlook how important that is. Right. The birth lottery is so important. We don't choose that, but we understand it and know it well. So behind the scenes a little bit, Morgan, like as you were writing this book, you know, you talked a little bit about statistics and all of that stuff. What were like boots on the ground work you did to understand human behavior around money? Were there any kind of like cool insights that you picked up or focus groups that you did or just sitting at a cafe and seeing what happens? Well, the, the good part of writing the book was that it's kind of a culmination of blog posts that I had written over the previous dozen years. So like most books, you start from scratch and you sit down and you try to write it. And that's, that's a lot of work. This was just leveraging what I had done over more than a dozen years. So made it a little bit easier from that. But I've never considered myself a journalist. A journalist calls people up and goes on, this, on the street and goes out and reports a story. I've always just embraced the fact that I'm just, I'm just a guy sitting at a desk firing off my own opinions. So there was really no, you know, were there focus groups or anything like that? No, it's just been casual observations in my own life, with my friends, with my colleagues that I do. And I know, and this is an important point too, because I'm doing that, I know that I'm writing about finance through my own lens, through my own view of the world. And my own view of the world is so incredibly limited as everyone else's is. I, I don't want to pretend like I understand how people in different different genders, different generations, different countries think about money because I'm just, I'm just spouting this off from my own head. And I can try to be open-minded and empathetic about other people, but most people, what is most persuasive to them is what they've experienced in their own life. So that's why, you know, the, the first chapter of the book is called No One's Crazy. And I make this point that people do crazy things with their money, but no one's crazy because all the decisions that they make check the boxes in their head at that given moment of what makes sense to them. And what makes sense to them is just what they've experienced in their own life. So there were no focus groups. There's nothing like that. It's just, you know, after more than a dozen years of, of doing this full time, of just being able to observe and think about how people think about finance and talk to other people about it. What were the most important points that I had learned about how people make decisions with money? That's actually really interesting. I don't know that I expected to hear that actually, but that being said, have you ever noticed any differences between men and women in their monetary behaviors? And if so, what were your observations? Yeah, this is, and I, I feel like it's a great question, but no matter what I say, I'm, I'm going to make someone angry, but I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> I think there is a thing that, and everything I'm about to say is a generalization. There's going to be examples of people who, for whom this does not apply to, but I think men are probably more capable of believing things that have not been proven, if that makes sense. Maybe gullibility is a way of summarizing that. I would say... It's just something I've been toying with with Megan recently, and I, I wanted to chime in with. I would say that almost to me means that they're more likely to take on risk. Exactly. And if, if you are more likely to believe something that has not been proven, you're more likely to swing for the fences and say, I'm willing to put my life savings on this company that has not been proven yet, this technology that has not been proven yet. Now, in investing, that can be a benefit. In a lot of other things in life, it's not. <laughs> in a lot of other things in life, 
you know, demanding that there's proof for these things that you're putting forth is really important. So I think that's, that's one difference. And that's, that's a huge generalization, but I think it's, it kind of points in that direction. I would say women tend to be less emotional during the peak moments of, of stress. How you respond during the peak moments of stress in investing is everything. Like how you responded in 2008 and March of 2020 during these moments where the world is collapsing down, how you behaved during those weeks, during those months is more important than everything you did in the previous 10 years combined. Like if you panicked last March when the market was falling 10% every day, nothing that you did in the previous five years matters. If you panicked then, it was, it was all for naught. There's this quote that I love in, in the book from Napoleon who was asked, he was asked, what, what's the definition of a military genius? And Napoleon said, a military genius is the man who can do the average thing when everyone else around him is losing his mind. And I think it's the exact same in investing, that you don't need to make constantly great decisions. You just need to not screw up when it matters most. When everyone else is going crazy, you just have to do the average thing. And I would say, on average, generalizing, women are probably better at that. I would also say, the last thing I would say, just in terms of personal finance, is that men, particularly young men, are much more likely to wave their peacock feathers and want to use their money to show social status than any other age group. Like men in their young 20s, the ability to prove who they are by showing you how much money they make, even if they don't make that much money, is probably more than any other age group that I've seen. Those are all generalizations that people can disagree with, but in, I would say in general, that's how I view the difference between men and women with money. What do you think it's going to take for women to take on more risk in that space? Well, the first thing I would say is, I don't know if they should. I don't know if it's a fault. Because if, if men are taking on more risk, they're gonna do better as investors a lot of the time and way worse some of the time. And during that period where they've realized they took on too much risk and everything unwinds and they have to sell at the bottom, that's gonna unravel all of the outperformance that they may have had beforehand. So there's an old colleague of mine named Luanda Cosmo who wrote a book called Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl. And she kind of outlines how this is, about how women tend to do better over time. And the research on that is actually kind of nebulous, that women earn higher returns over time. Some studies show they do, some studies show they don't. Like every study, there's probably, there's probably something else out there that shows the opposite. But the point that she made was, was basically just what I said, that during these moments of peak panic, if you're able to keep your head on, that's what makes the most difference over your lifespan as an investor. So even if they're not taking, you know, I would say investors of all, both genders, probably on average, take on too much risk. I'd say most investors, like whatever they think their risk tolerance is, it's probably a notch below that. And the reason most investors don't realize that, they haven't come to terms with that, is because you only learn that you're taking too much risk maybe during one week per decade do you realize that you are actually taking too much risk during the other 99% of the time. It's hard to tell. Like most of the time you think you're taking the appropriate amount of risk. And then when the world falls apart, when there's a new virus and there's a pandemic that's shutting the economy down, then you realize, oh, actually I was taking on way too much risk and I needed to sell some of it here to get back to where I should have been. So it's a good question. How can women take on more risk? I just don't know if it's actually, if the answer to that is that, is that they should. Maybe, maybe some should, but in general, I think it's probably about right. I feel like this, if I had to summarize that from my own personal self, I would say that I need to try a few more risky things if I have the means to do it while simultaneously trusting in my gut and saying it's okay to be slightly more risk averse when I'm feel like when I feel it inside of me, which frankly, lately I'm feeling a lot more risk averse than I am feeling like I want to take on risk, but 
I guess it depends on the day. So Morgan, one of the things that you talk about is this key to happiness inside of your book. And I guess I want to know, is the key to happiness spending money, having all the time to yourself to do what you want to do? Or is it, you know, saving money so that you're able to do it? Like you talk about a lot of different things within the book. And I guess I'm curious what your definition of happiness actually is. I mean, true to what I said earlier, it's different for everyone. So I'm not going to pretend like there's one answer that's going to be, that's what everyone should follow. From what I've seen, certainly for myself and my wife, and I think it was probably the most for the greatest number of people, is that how you can use money to be happier or just with the best definition of happiness in general is having control over your time. It's the ability to wake up every morning and to say, I can do whatever I want today. And most days you might wake up and say, I want to go to work. I want to be a productive member of society. That's what I want to do today, but it's on your own terms. As soon as you can control your schedule, control your day and do what you want, when you want, with who you want for as long as you want, that to me is for most people going to be the driver of actual happiness in the world. And I think this is why the well-known correlation between money and happiness is not that strong. That as people get richer, they, they don't get as happy as they previously assumed they would. It's because even if you're lucky enough in your career, you're successful enough in your career to get a big raise, you double your salary, and you realize you're not any happier. It's probably because the reason you got a raise is because you have so much more responsibility at work. You have so many more commitments. Your schedule is fuller than it's ever been. You wake up and you, you, you're jam-packed from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. with calls and meetings all day, most of which you don't want to be there. Like someone else owns your time. Maybe some, that, that someone else is an organization or a product or your boss, whatever it is, but you don't have control over your time. And I think the people who are happiest are the ones who have the ability to control their schedule, the ability to say, I'm not going to take any meetings on Wednesday, the ability to wake up on a random Thursday and say, I'm not feeling it today. I'm not going to go to work. Those are the people that tend to be the happiest over time. And not just happiest, but I think the most successful, the people who can, like most, if we're talking about thought jobs or different careers where your job is to make a good decision, it's not to you know dig a ditch, it's to make a good decision with your head. That just requires a lot of intellectual flexibility to where you can go for a walk and sit on the couch and just throw around a bunch of thoughts in your head to come up with the best idea. It's not something that you can schedule or force or sit in a meeting and come up with the best idea. You need a lot of flexibility to just go about your day as you want. And I think most people know that good decisions don't come during meetings. They come in the shower. They come during your commute. They come when you're on the treadmill. That's when people get the best creative ideas. And you're only going to have that time if you have control over your schedule. So I think to the extent that we can use money to give ourselves independence and autonomy and control over our time, just being able to do whatever we want to do, that to me is really the key to using money to be happier for most people. Now, obviously, there is a base level of physical necessities, material necessities that can bring happiness. And I like nice cars and nice homes as much as anyone else. So like, I try, I try to make the point, like, I'm not suggesting that you should live like a monk and live in a tiny shack and use all your money being like, no, it's not that. But I think we overlook how much we adjust and get used to physical stuff and how much joy we can actually get from independence and autonomy. It's a really easy thing to overlook. That cuts deep. When I first met Megan, I was working like six days a week and I had no autonomy of my time. So that was actually when I was my most miserable, but also making the most money in my entire yeah. life. And, it's, <laughs> so. and there, look, there are a lot of people, if you're completely type A, then having that much independence might be a liability for you. It might drive you crazy. You might love the structure of your job. So I, like, it's always important to say like, it's different for everyone. But I think for the greatest number of people, independence and autonomy should be the target. 
But Morgan, what's also interesting is, I think I brought this up last time, but YOLO economy that the New York Times published that article about millennials and they're all like, YOLO, I'm going to quit my job. Like we're a lot of type A people because they want to take their time back. Because as you can see, I'm in my bedroom. I sleep in here. This is also my workspace. It can be a lot. And so I think there is kind of a tipping point happening with people right now that are realizing a lot of what you just said is, wait, I need to be the own MC of my life and I'm not. And so I need to take that back with some constraint and actually, you know, design a life that works for me. Yeah. And I think there's probably a lot of pendulum shifting from one extreme to the next. People who go from working 100 hours a week and then they say, I'm going to go backpack across Europe. Like there's probably, there's probably something in between that's going to lead you to a happier life. But I think a lot of people learn this the hard way and they don't learn it until it's later in life. I mean, there's a thing that I, that I read about in the book from a gerontologist named Carl Pilmer who spent years interviewing a thousand elderly Americans, most of whom were in their 90s or hundreds even. And he just interviewed them and he asked them, what have you learned about life? Like you're a hundred years old, looking back, what's worked, what didn't work? Like tell me, and he wrote this book called 30 Lessons for Living. And he makes a point in the book that of the 1,000 people that he interviewed, not a single person wished that they had earned more money. Not a single person said that earning more than your neighbors was important to your happiness. Not a single person wished that they had saved more money. Like it just never came up. But what was almost universal among these people is that they wish they spent more time with their friends. They wish they spent more time with their kids. They wish that they were nicer to people. They wish they wouldn't have held grudges when they were younger. And that was not just like the majority. That was every single one of them. No one brought up money. And I think for us at our age, like that's got to be so profound. If you're looking at these people who are like, PhDs in life, they're 100 years old, they've seen everything, and they have a totally different view on what makes you people happy than the three of us probably do. Like that, that to me, it just shows like how counterintuitive a lot of the things with money are. It's so natural, particularly for young people, and I'd say particularly for young men, to think that more money is going to give you a better life, that more money is going to make you more popular, more attractive, more successful, et cetera, et cetera. And there's some extent to which that's true. It's just easy to overlook how true it is and how much these other factors that actually lead to happiness. The people who are 100 years old can now see clear as day that that's what mattered. That's easy for people like us to overlook. Morgan, this all has been so informative and like I'm just learning so much from not only your book, but from all of the things that you're saying and hopefully our listeners take away something as well. I do want to ask, outside of your book, where else can people find you? Where are all the places online that we can locate you if we're looking for Morgan Housel? I spend most of my time on Twitter. That's my content drug of choice. My, my Twitter name is Morgan Housel, my first and last name. That's where everything I write will end up and every random thought that crosses my mind over the course of a day will end up. So that's most of where I spend my time. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been incredible. And I look forward to bugging you online with so many more questions as they arise. Thanks so much. This has been fun. Awesome. Thank you, Morgan. I'm going to go look up that letter you wrote to your son because I imagine it's a Yeah, there's, there's one to my son and daughter. It's financial advice to my new son and financial <laughs> advice to my new daughter. I, I, wrote, Beautiful. I wrote both of them. Chills. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> so Megan, what did you think? First gentleman on the pod. I know I was a little apprehensive to have a man, but I think the perspective that Morgan brings is really enlightening. 
to bring human behavior into finance, which again, I think I said during the episode really parallels a lot with what we're doing here, you know, bringing human back to finance. So I think it was a great episode. Wealth of Knowledge, a great easy read, and now is an audible. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say you, you got to listen. So was it Morgan that actually read the book or did he have someone else read it? I have to listen back because now I don't know. Now that I heard his voice, I'm like, huh, you know, (laughs) because I listen to so many things a week. It's hard to tell. But now I'm going to go back and listen. I'm going to be like, oh, was that his voice? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I when the book first came out and it had just a huge response to it. I don't know. I guess I was a little bit surprised about the content because I I was expecting I guess I was expecting something completely different, something a little bit more on the a little bit more of the Motley Fool tone. And I didn't catch that at all inside of the book. I actually found it really enlightening and a super easy read. But I mean, even some of the things that he was saying about, you know, generational wealth and some portion of it being, you know, the way that you were born, right? But also all of the tips and tricks about having thoughtful, thoughtful behavior. And especially for women, the fact that we are slightly more risk averse, despite the fact that I do want to take on more risks. And I do want more women to take on more risks while still having that the ability to like think about your gut instinct and telling yourself that what you're feeling is right. So I don't know. I feel like I have a lot to chew on after talking with him. I think it was another groundbreaking episode of girls just want to have funds, you know? (laughs) No, it it definitely was. And we're, we're, you know, we're jumping the bridge over to having guys on, which is interesting. And I think his perspective is his perspective. I don't know if I agree with absolutely everything he said. Sure. Like men are only capable of risk. I don't think he said men are only capable, but no, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But again, everyone has their own opinion and that's totally cool. But again, I think it's super interesting to look at it through a behavior lens. You know, very similar to all those Ask Zeta questions we had of the 20 questions for couples. You know, what was the first thing you spent money on, you know, your first purchase, your solo purchase. It helps add up to who you are with money and just maybe who you are as a person. And so this is just an interesting introspective and into that as well. So I enjoyed it. Well, boo, should we call it good? Wrap it up? Yeah, let's call it a day, man. All right. Love you. Love you too. Thanks for joining us. Head on over to girlsjustwanna.com where you can subscribe to the show, follow Megan and I on social, or even text us your important financial questions. And remember, there's no shame in asking anything. We'll see you next time on Girls Just Wanna Have Funds. Funds.